outside the box of religious obligation lies a road less travelled into the heart of the Father's affection. Slinging freedom all over the place, this is the God Journey. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to remind you, I'm on the road, and so our recording environment is not what it used to be, so... Yeah, there's some glitches here and there's some audio problems. We'll try to work them out as best we can down the road. But I think overall you can understand what we're talking about. And I think this one's going to be a real blessing to you. Kyle, I've never seen a group of people more excited about talking about sin in my whole life. At least those who are trying to follow Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) More excited about talking about sin, huh? Yeah, I got an email this week. I look forward to more podcasts about sin. Now, how would you ever expect somebody to say something like that? Out of context, it'd be crazy. But boy, in the context of what we've been exploring, the excitement of it, not not just uh, emails and blog comments, but phone calls and texts. And I'm almost talking about sin and Adam and Eve and Paul's view of it 24-7 with folks. And they say, I am sleeping at night. So 24-7 is probably a little overstated. But uh, anyway, your life settling down there in Sheridan? It is. Jess and I actually felt like we had a, a weekend in Sheridan. It was the first weekend that I've spent in Sheridan since we moved up here. So that was good. Um, got to um, continue to build into some community that we're building up here. Got to go up and enjoy the mountains. That was incredible, especially with young kids where it takes a lot of time to get everybody loaded and things organized, you know, just to get things moving to be 25 minutes from the mountains and have access like that. It, man, it does my heart so good. Uh, It was just a blast. Elle got to do her first hike all by herself and she killed it. She was hiking right alongside of some of the college students and she owned it super well. So I was very proud of her. So good to hear about her progress. That's fabulous. I love that. Well, we were going to talk last week and it didn't happen. So Sarah jumped in for a little bit of a sorry, we can't do a podcast moment. But <laughs> Yeah, but uh, glad glad you're back this week and we can give a chat. I'm Wayne Jacobson. And I'm Kyle Rice. And this is The God Journey. We're glad you're here. Uh, best thing you heard this week, Kyle? I had a really fun Brene Brown best thing that I heard this week. I was looking through some quotes for a class that I'm teaching. And this quote came up, truth and courage aren't always comfortable, but they are never weakness. Oh, my gosh. That's lovely. I love that. I love the fact that, you know, just the idea that they're never weakness, especially in some of the conversations that you and I have been getting into with people or the things that we press into in the world. I mean, courage sometimes. Sometimes it feels like it is the antithesis of, of things versus a benefit or a strength. Especially when you try to hold on to truth against lies. Lies seem so much more powerful, and they are so much quicker to incite people to various actions. And when you just hold that space for what's true, and people wow. around you are denying it and lying about it and have something to be gained by it not being true, like, a few podcasts ago, the thing I heard from a friend in Arizona was uh, the people who don't want the truth to be the truth. So got to keep sheltering behind lies. And then it feels pretty powerless, I guess, to kind of hold in the, in the truth, hold that spot. And yet, uh, I agree. I think courage and truth always went out over time, just not usually very quickly. And it's strange that we feel powerless, right? Like that 
that's interesting to me that the feeling of powerlessness when we're holding on to the truth and when when gossip or lies or distortions of who we are are swirling around us or about our character or something we did or you know a it can be very discouraging. It can be hard to hold that space and continue to to create a an invitation for others to step into that understanding or that knowledge. Yeah, well, you look at the life of Jesus at the end of it, where he's the one that's holding that space for truth, and the liars get enough to kill him, have him executed, yeah. to go through the whole process with him. So, yeah, in our world that seems to value lies, I was telling somebody the other day, the community I value is where truth and authenticity is honored. And vulnerability is welcomed. And where that environment doesn't exist, I, I, I don't think the kingdom of God flourishes, where lies and anger and fear dominate. I got into a really interesting conversation with a student just even today. We were talking about some things, and one of the things that really came up was I asked them about trust and vulnerability, and especially in their community. And this individual made a really intriguing observation. They made a comment about the younger generation uses the word or the term friend a lot more flippantly. They talk about how, oh, well, I'm going to go meet this friend, even though this is the first time they're ever meeting them and they have no context for them. And I asked this individual about, about trust and about the idea of vulnerability. And there they came back very strongly that vulnerability is a very dangerous thing in their social world uh, because of, the option or the availability for that vulnerability to be then weaponized against you to where not only is it that helpless feeling, but it's also wounding you at the same time. You're helpless to defend against it and it's tearing at your heart at the same time. Yeah. Image is king, right? Image yeah. is, it's more important the image you project than the authenticity of your heart. But in the long term, I think for good mental health, you want environments in which authenticity and vulnerability is honored. Yeah, that's where friends really exist. They exist in that framework. They don't exist in the other where there's so much hostility or people jockeying positions or people putting out an image of something. That's why we're always so shocked in religious context when people have been putting this image of being a great follower of Christ. And then we find out their feet are full of clay and it all collapses on them. And it's just, yeah. it, we, we call it hypocrisy, we call it whatever, but it's it's unnerving because people trade on an image so much and gain so much mm. power that when it collapses, everyone else who's tried to be authentic the whole time is kind of like, okay, this is not good. I, I should have been lying and building images because that's what's rewarded. And it often is, but it doesn't mean that's yeah. where the God kingdom works. So authenticity holds out, vulnerability will open doors that image never will. And uh, I think people who trade in images end up communicating about things that don't make any sense because nothing's real. It's all yeah. positive or something else. I read best thing I heard this week <laughs> was the whine of a slide out on the RV. That, that's probably the best thing I heard all week. We had two okay. nights where we didn't get that wine. And then we're living in a very tight closet together. So we had a little bit of trouble with our slide out. By the way, those of you who don't know, we have left on our trip. We've been a week out now, almost a week out. And we're in Denver with uh, my son for a week or so here. And then we're going to head uh, to some things back further east. But yeah, it's been a heck of a trip. We've had some problems. My best thing I heard this week, other than the whine of that motor, which is seemingly working right now, and we do have it uh, kind of nailed down, I think. This from 2 Corinthians 1.7. This is Paul. He says, when we see that you're just as willing to endure the hard times as to enjoy the good times, 
we know you're going to make it, no doubt about it. Mm. And I just love the reality of following, even this RV trip, there have been great yeah. times already on this trip, wonderful times. And there's also been some real hardship. We were at the hospital last night with our dog, our oldest mm. uh, golden retriever. She's 12 and a half and got some symptoms going on. I'm going to do all here, but we're, we're probably not going to bring her home from this trip. We'll probably put her to rest sometime along it. She's okay right now to carry on for at least a few more days or maybe weeks. So we don't know, mm. but being able to hold in our hearts. And I, I think the wane of old, and I go back 20, 30 years, I was either happy or sad, depending on the circumstances in my life. Yeah. And I, there wasn't the capacity to say, okay, this over here is painful. And this over here is joyful in the same context or same reality, or even finding the sweetness. Sarah and I talked about it last night at the hospital and we're getting some bad news about our dog. And we're talking about, you know what, this is, this is what we got to hold the joy of this dog. This dog has been a valued part of our family. And if these are her last days and we know they are, then let's make them as rich and rewarding as we can. Let's not grieve what's still here. Yeah. And then the grief will come, no doubt. I mean, we've already teared up over this dog. So it's not that the grief isn't there or the grief won't come, but letting things have their place. Right now, it's mm -hmm. last days. Let's celebrate. Let's do what makes her happy. Let's give her a bite of Sarah's chocolate chip cookie every day. And uh, the vet said, don't take her on walks anymore because that agitates her condition. So she hasn't enjoyed walks for a long time. She's got arthritis. And But the our vet said, you know, you want to keep her walking. That keeps the muscles using as long as you can. But now yeah. it's kind of changing. So she didn't have to walk as much. And so we're finding that space of how do we have joy over here and there's pain over here and there's room in the human heart for both. It doesn't mm -hmm. have to be one or the other. And even at any given time, we can hold both in our heart. I would say I'm very much in the earlier stages of that process of being able to to hold both discomfort, disruption, pain, sorrow, and the joy of it, or and the joy of life and joy-filled moments in the same space at the same time. I feel like for me, often the the painful emotions tend to overwhelm or try to take out the good. They overwhelm the good at times. And the process of honoring, honoring the space, honoring the the pain and holding space for that but not allowing it to overwhelm me, not allowing it to take out the joy that is there. Jess and I, we, we were talking the other day and I had the, the girls for the day and we got home and, or Jess got home from her appointment and she said, well, how, how are you guys doing? How did you do? And I was like, well, um, uh, I'll use the edited version. I said it was 80% chaos and 20% joy. And she's like, okay. And I was like, yeah, you know, I, I'm doing better at being able to really appreciate even in the 80% chaos, that's, there's, that's joy of being with toddlers. But especially early on in the parenting process, it really took it out for me. Like if it was very stressful or chaotic or, you know, there's food being flung on the walls and the other one screaming and, you know, this other chaos, it was smart for me to hold Hold the miracle of the fact that Jess and I were even able to have two beautiful, healthy daughters, let alone the fact that I'm getting to enjoy them for the day. Yeah. And so that's, you know, just staying in that space and remembering those things and holding that space is still a work in progress for me, for sure.
No, I'm telling you, when I was younger, I, I wouldn't, a bad thing would ruin anything good. I mean, it becomes overwhelming, right? The, the yeah, bad thing, absolutely. the hard thing, the brutal thing. Uh, to be able to have both now, to be able to say, okay, this is a problem and it's over yeah. there. Yep. And when I have a chance to address it, we'll, we'll do it. If I can't, there's joy over here. So I'm going to, I'm going to experience that. And even we mm. talked about the agony and ecstasy that's in God. And I, mm. I think that's how God navigates the chaos of the universe, the brokenness of it. There's agony for people who hurt and people who are, who are broken and devastated. And there's the ecstasy of the joy of redemption and how God works his way into the world. that's so broken and so there's room for both. And I, I find transitioning between them now is just, it's not even a transition. It's just this fluid sense of even I'm, I'm sorrow about something here and joy just creeps right into the middle of it and mm -hmm. lifts me beyond the pain that's going on. So I'm enjoying that. that. Yeah, me too. Lots of email from people want to interact on some of it. I think the Adam and Eve thing was just as it was for me. Boy, I just, that's a whole different way to view the original sin and if it, if it was the focus on us who made adam and eve who made bad choices or yeah. the focus isn't on what happened between a, a superior being and mm. some new humanity that's on the planet pat wrote this and i thought it was interesting she said the idea of adam and eve in the garden dealing with an archangel or should i say pitted against an archangel leaves me with lots of questions why would god do that would a loving god do that leaving us unprotected against such a foe? Why didn't they, Adam and Eve, call out to God for his help? Don't get me wrong. I think the idea you're pondering is a good one. But the questions it evokes, I'm pondering this idea too, looking forward to more discussion about it on the podcast. What are your thoughts on that? I well, Pass I it back read, to me. Way to go. Oh, no, yeah. I'm going to pass it back to you because when I was reading through those questions, I was like, what? oh my gosh, like what is happening right now? Because like, I, I deeply appreciated the questions because... I agree. Like when, when we were processing that and we were thinking through the idea of, of this experience and it being pitted up against the, the archangel and, you know, that whole experience, it's like, okay. But then it was just unjust. Like, is that, is that a form of injustice? Like to take your new creation and pit them up against such a, an overwhelming force? Like, is that the action of a loving God? You know, it was a really good question, and I'm I'm still holding that space. What are your thoughts on that? What how, what went through your mind? Well, I I thought about that when when it first came up. I, I yeah. knew we'd get this question. I've been I've been hoping it would come through someone else because I know people out there, and this is this is not the only person who raised it. A number of people have. So, yeah. what does that say about God? Well, yeah. I, I'm stuck that way on the first story of creation too. You know, what does it say about God to put a tree in a garden and tell him it's as beautiful and desirable to eat, but don't eat it, leave it alone? I mean, that story also has its. How could God? Why would God? Particularly with all the suffering that's resulted from that. Yeah. The way I approach stuff, I think they're both complex. If we try to see it just as a linear act in which God set up something to watch it fail for him to be redemptive later. And where I come to, because I, I there's so many things in scripture, Jesus dying on a cross. There's so many things in scripture that go, okay, why does it have to be this way? This doesn't make yeah. sense. The physics of it don't make sense. We know from the garden and Jesus is praying saying, if there's another way, let this cut past. So even Jesus is saying, there's got to be another way. And there obviously isn't another way. We don't know the motives of God behind this. So like we get the story of Job and this bartering between the devil and God. And I, I know that's a setup to a story that the writer wants to tell. 
with a culture that believes God's responsible for everything. But the nuance of that shifts throughout the Old Testament and into the New, that God isn't, though God's omnipotent, for whatever, how he set up the creation, he doesn't, everything that happens here is not, does not lie at his feet, his responsibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how the enemy, how the devil, Romans, uh, Revelation 12 talks about it, intrudes on the creation to try and destroy it for the God he abhors and how, where God was in all of that. I, I don't think it's clear and I'm happy. I'm I, not happy. I guess I'm contented for it not to be clear. I don't think it is what mm -hmm. we think it is. I would have the same question. Yeah. If God set that up, then where's the loving God? And so yeah. I don't, I, say, I don't think it's a setup. However that unfolded, however the enemy got into the creation and disturbed Adam and Eve, and however God interacts with that process, he's not less than powerful and not less than loving. And yet there are things like that that in our humanity, I think of Murray's old thing when this child was in the back of the car going, Daddy, why is the moon following the car when it's going under a bunch of trees? And he's saying, no, the moon isn't doing that. And he tried to explain it and the daughter doesn't get it because she, she can't grasp it. I, yeah. I think there's something we can't grasp about the purpose of God in the creation and in its brokenness mm. and in his redemption that is beyond our ability to comprehend, which is why we're being asked to trust him and trust his goodness. Mm. And you can't see that from here. You're like two-year-olds wrestling with physics that's way beyond you. And I, I'm, I'm content yeah. with that. I, I really think there's more going on to the purpose of God in the cosmos and the mm. disruption of darkness and why God didn't just nip that in the bud at the beginning and stuff it in hell somewhere and go and have a, a pristine creation. That's putting human speculation to something that's greater than we comprehend. So yeah. I don't have an answer for that, but I don't mind holding it. I don't think this story yeah. presents any greater problem than the previous story. Of yeah. God oh, just plants a big desirable tree and says, or it's no it's touchy. No, it's no different than, yeah, it's no different than how does, how does a grandpa get away with molesting a four-year-old granddaughter like Sarah went through? Where, where was God? Yeah. How is God loving? We can say if that's a setup and God has set up this whole thing, we don't end up in any good space. We can just say, yeah. okay, it did happen. And God's the redemptive influence that can bring her out of it or Adam and Eve out of the brokenness of the garden or whatever. God's the redemptive force in the universe and the enemy is the destructive force in the universe. And we're invited to sync up our lives with the redemptive force. That, that's where we want to go. Yeah. And I love this story that kind of seems to take our fault out of it. Okay, it's not our fault. We were overwhelmed by something more powerful than we had agency to deal with. And then that created an abandonment that even estranged us even further. And now the work of redemption is to get into that story with us. And invite us out. So where was God in the beginning? And how did that happen? And why didn't God do? And I, I just, I was telling somebody the other day, I used to have all the why questions. I was the best why questioner of God on the planet. Why would you <laughs> let me do? That? Why wouldn't you get that? Why don't you? Why don't you? When people ask me that, and somebody asked me that the other day about something, and they're like, why would God? I say, you know what? I have nothing for why questions anymore. I don't even ask them. Mm -hmm. My, even when Sarah's story started to unfold, there was never, why, God? Why did this happen? I think scripture is about what, not about why. It's hmm. not explain this to me so I understand it, so I can somehow cope with it. It's simply when these things happen, or we're in the hospital last night with Abby. It's, okay, God, what are you doing here? Not, why did this happen? We're just going out on this trip. Why, hmm. this could have happened at home. Why, why, why? That's the old Wayne. I would have definitely been in that soup. 
but I'm not anymore. I don't ask the why question. And I don't know when that went away. I didn't just say, okay, I'm going to stop asking them. I just go, okay, there's so many imponderables. They're unanswerables. Yeah. So I'm just, okay, God, what now? What do you have for us? What's next? Or Sarah having some more stuff with trauma this week to deal with or out on the road going, okay, we're home, much more pristine setting, but there's something about being on the road and some of those things that are provoking more vulnerability and uncertainty and that opens the door for god to do a deeper layer so it's not a why it's always a what to me and i've heard that from theologians forever that people who try to fight over exactly how did creation happen was it seven literal days was it ages epics and how does that go with what we seem to know about the history of the universe and all that kind of, i don't i don't think genesis was written for why i think it was mm. written for what this is what god was doing this explains it so same way with the same way with Job. I don't think God's sitting there bothering with the devil saying, oh, he's really good. Go ahead and whack him up good. And I mean, that's such yeah. a cavalier guy. It's no more like God than the unjust judge in Luke where he's he's got to be begged for something until he's annoyed where he finally gives a woman what he want, what she wants. And that that's a lesson about prayer. But the, the lesson is about persistence on our side, not reluctance on God's side. Mm. And somehow the blame shame thing that the fall gives us, either the blame goes here, it's got to go there. And yeah. either, either way we deal with blame is going to hurt the redemptive process because there's nothing mm -hmm. there for us that I think answers those big questions. It makes me think about a, a moment or a season that father and I were in and I was going through, I was going through a broken engagement and all of these questions were coming up of why, 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 you know, and I had my laundry list of things and I had my justification for why I was asking why, because I thought I'd followed all the right steps and done all the right things and, and gone through the process that I needed to go through. And I just got this nudge of this sense as I was sitting there wrestling through this and tears streaming down my face and just got this sense of sometimes in life. You can have me, or you can have your own perceived understanding, but sometimes you don't get both at the same time. For me, it was that moment of, okay, do you trust my heart? Do you trust my character, even though that may be a lot bigger, or there might be a lot of misunderstanding that you may not have yet, or the picture may not be complete yet, but do you trust me, and are you willing to, basically, do you want the relationship that I'm offering you, or do you want the control of knowing why so that then you can make your own decisions and move forward however you want to move forward? And that was, man, that was, I remember that moment very distinctly. That was in 2010. And I just remember being like, Ooh, okay. <laughs> and he, he has circled me back to that several times when I, that question of why has come up. And it's not that asking the question why is a bad thing, but it was, it was this also this settledness of, okay, Father, even if I am asking why, I do know that your heart is good, that your love is complete, and that the life that you're offering me is the life that I've always longed for. So if I circle back to that and hold on to that, even in the midst of the why, I can be at rest. And that would be a better process when we were little kids with our parents, right? Because they're telling us no about things that we can't see any problem with why or your own kids, you know, when we have to yeah. say this is what we're doing. And the kids, Daddy, I don't get why. Why can't I do this? Why can't I? And it just there's no way to explain it. 
And the, the trusting of love, to me, is what scripture always invites us to. The trust that love provides. I know I've got this God who loves me. So I've got a question about how, what was going on in the garden and why didn't we get what a, a better break there? I'm going, okay, well, it's not that God was trying to set us up. It wasn't that God yeah. was trying to wound us. It wasn't that. It may look like that from our perspective, but our perspective is flawed. It doesn't get us there. Mm. And so that opens the door to other things. Friend of mine, Mike in Florida, wrote me. We had a couple discussions. I shared some of the Adam and Eve story with him before I, we talked about it on our podcast. And okay, he wrote me and he said, "I just read uh, Romans seven seven to thirteen, and hear the flavor spirit of what Paul was saying. I was alive until the law came, and sin revived in me, and sin seized an opportunity and deceived me. Sounds to me like Paul saying sin is a spiritual force, much like trauma. The law triggered something, pain." which made me act out in hurtful waves. That's interesting thought. The law is a trigger. Now, when he said the law is a trigger, I went, okay, that word means a lot more to me than it used to because of what we've been yeah. through with Sarah. But the law, it brings shame, guilt, et cetera. Our religious response has been to try harder. But Papa's saying, good grief, don't try harder. I'm exposing trauma in your life and I want you to press in and trust me to heal. Religion says work harder. God is saying rest and trust in repentance mm -hmm. and rest is your salvation and quietness and trust is your strength. Boy, that's a powerful thought right there. Because when I think about sin or the law triggered something, pain, separation, all shame that, that goes with it. And I look about things that were in Sarah and my relationship as this trauma was influencing her. She's telling me things that I was saying to her, sometimes in jest, sometimes not meaning anything, but the trauma triggered something deeply negative in her soul. And that's mm. why it was easy for a therapist to go, Wayne's the problem. And we look yeah. back at some of the things I said now, which going, yeah, no, I know you didn't mean that, or I, that wouldn't trigger me now. But at the time when trauma's ruling the day, those things. So it's not even to say the law is a trigger is not to say it's bad. It's Paul saying, I didn't even know what coveting was until the law said, do not covet. And then it produced coveting in me of every kind. So I'm hanging out and I'm, I'm not even coveting my neighbor's horse, cow, camel, wife, nothing. And the law says, don't covet your wife's, your neighbor's <laughs> wife. And he goes, what does my neighbor have? Oh, fine looking wife. He's got more camels than I got. So the law itself triggered the trauma. And the trigger of the trauma is not a bad thing. I know we live in a society that says we've got to remove all the triggers. And I get yeah. being sensitive to triggers. But to remove all the triggers is to remove what scratches the symptoms of the problem. And rather than remove all the things that scratch the symptoms, it's important to look deeper and find the trauma. And let it heal there. And to me, that's that's what Paul is saying. It's not, it's not me doing it. It's sin that indwells me. When we realize that sin, if, if it's true, and I'm beginning to, I'm already in this camp, sin is a trauma. It does overwhelm us. It does load us with shame. It does isolate us from the Father who loves us, not from God's side of it, which is how religion taught it, but from our side of it. Trauma makes us see the enemy where the enemy isn't, which is exactly what's going on with Sarah in those last couple of years before she parted. And then we got to the healing that we needed to have. It was beautiful and, and the aftermath of it. But to me, that's the, that's the joy of saying, okay, these things get triggered. Now, is the trigger the problem or is the trauma the problem? And how do I then let God access the trauma 
and invite people into that space so that healing. And to me, I think that's a, even a better way as to how we deal with sin than we stuff it into the darkness and we try and pretend it's not there. And we try to act better in front of the people that would judge us if they knew we struggled with sin. And they're all struggling with sin too, but they're hiding it in their coping mechanisms, which are to judge us. And all of that just adds to the trauma in the world instead of the redemption in the world. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, and I, as I'm listening to you process, I'm thinking about a lot of the trends in today's culture and in today's society. And the primary trend that I'm seeing is let's remove, let's do everything we can do to remove absolutely anything that's going to cause disruption, pain, suffering, uh, lack of comfort. Because then, okay, then we can continue to live in the life that we're living in. We don't feel any disruption and we can continue to do what we're doing. And yet you have to press into and you have to be willing to endure some suffering, some trial, some challenge in order to allow that that deep trauma to be unearthed and allowed to be healed. It's like there's this uh, almost in some regards like this woke culture is pushing towards, okay, let's remove any trigger from the world. Like, do not do not trigger me. Don't you dare trigger me in any way of form or fashion. Just accept it. Don't press into it. And yet it's like, but is the life that you're living wholehearted? Are, are you experiencing genuine life? Because if you're not, if the way of you doing life isn't working out for you, and you keep bumping into these things that are activating that and showing you that, no, this there's a better way of living out there, and yet your response is, let's remove anything that, that my way of life might be bumping into versus calling your way of getting through life onto the table and saying, is this healthy or not? Is this right or not? Is this a good way through or not? It's like locking your child into a closet at age 12 so they don't get into trouble in their teenage years. Yeah. You remove all temptation. Remove every possibly bad thing. Yes. But you've abused the child because, like you said, they can't get the wholeheartedness from there. Yeah. Our kids are going to sin. Our kids are going to make mistakes. They're going to do things that are destructive to their lives as they too find their way into redemption. And I, I think the same thing's true. We try to remove all triggers. We remove the exposure of brokenness, which opens the door to healing. Now, if the exposure of brokenness leads to shame and suicide and horror, then obviously that's not helpful. We need a better answer than that. But the answer still is you cannot shut down all the negative emotions because then people are only surviving. They're just surviving and they're not embracing wholeness. And God knew that wholeness is what he wanted to embrace. So, yeah, let's take the risk of things are going to get tough and you're going to feel shame. But I've offered a way to you through it, not avoid it, not put a fence around it and live because it's pointing to something broken inside. And yeah. that's where the redemption of the cross goes to. It goes inside of us. But if our most, if the most important thing about us is our image, our brand, our reputation, if that's the most valuable commodity that we have to trade with, then yeah, we're going to remove it all. We're going to get rid of any of those triggers or those potential blemishes on that, right? Because then that challenges our, our Instagram identity, that mask self versus the actual genuine loving invitation into authenticity where you can be at risk you, uh, there is some brokenness in me that's still in process and still being healed that's okay and there's two <laughs> things there obviously there's a person who's trying to brand themselves with an image and so they're avoiding it the other part of that is people 
who are not not trying to build a brand, but they're just trying to survive. Yeah. And those triggers yeah. drive them to suicide or drive them to, and they're just trying to get to the next day. And so I yes. know there's space in here to go. It's not about let's trigger the heck out of people so they can get whole. Be sensitive no. to the broken folks around you. Be sensitive to where their pain is and what may, like, like right now with Sarah, I'm very, very aware of what can I say to her that's going to trigger things I don't want to trigger. And then what are the inadvertent triggers that open doors to healing for her and allow the Holy Spirit to rule in that environment? But it's not a matter of just pushing away every conceivable. I mean, I could just, you know, wear a gag all day long. I never talked to Sarah. And but we wouldn't be fine. Our relationship wouldn't be better for that. Because I, I'm learning how to be a more wholehearted lover of Sarah. That that's yeah. going on here. And on the other side, she's learning how to be a more wholehearted Sarah, where she doesn't have to let the trauma rule her life. That there's yeah. an authentic Sarah in there that's emerging that gets to have that as well. Because we're operating off of the assumption of doing our best to live through the lens of empathy, grace, and compassion, right? When we're navigating that with people, when we're holding space for people, it's like, okay, I was introducing the idea of lawnmower parents to my sociology class. And they're like, well, what is that? I've never heard of that before. I said, well, it's the... It's those situations, it's those parental techniques that eliminate all challenges, all suffering, all obstacles. They're like, uh-oh, I need to take a look at this looks um, from some of my students. Um, but so it seems loving. It seems loving to try to bow loving. down any obstacle that's in front of someone I care about. Yes. Instead of, no, we've, we're learning resilience in a world that's continuing to pick at you. And, and your trauma, because that, that that's the destructive nature of the world. And at some point, we've got to ask ourselves, how is my life living in the world? Am I putting redemption in the world? Or am I adding trauma to the world? Am I lying mm -hmm. and branding and triggering and hurting? Am I, am I adding to that in the world? Which, oh, stop it. There's enough people doing that. Yeah. Or am I finding a place of redemption that I can spread that into the world? Listen to this email, and this is a fairly long one. This is from Asia, and I, man, I think this lady is so articulate in what she's saying and, and her journey and what's going on. She said, I just listened to the latest podcast after having a conversation with my husband where I told him that Adam and Eve wouldn't have even known what a lie was. We are all taught all our lives that they made a bad choice, but I don't think they had a choice in that sense. They didn't know. In my own life, I can look back and realize I only chose what I did because I didn't actually understand the choices on the table before me. I didn't realize I was living in fear. I think that's why Jesus said, forgive them, because they know not what they're doing. When he's being crucified, how many times can we say in our own lives that we didn't know what we were doing? Isn't that true of humanity? I can look back on times where I see now that fear was controlling my decisions. Did I have agency of choice at that time? I don't think so. When fear is stripped out, we do make different choices. I'm becoming a person that isn't limited or bound by the people around me. I don't have to win others' approvals and live in fear. This has wrecked me on how to view others. There's a newfound compassion for people that takes me deeper. Everything we do is a choice that comes with a cost. When we know our choice, we can count the cost. There's so much to understand about how we take up our cross, how to choose Jesus' way, how to live in freedom and not be bound up in societal systems and pressures. It's ultimately understanding how not to be controlled and manipulated by anything. 
if we can look back at our own personal lives and have compassion, knowing we did the best with what understanding we had at the time, then where does that leave us in viewing other people and their sins? My heart just breaks. And I just get to a little, little closer to Jesus' heart as he's being murdered by the very people he has compassion on, realizing they just don't get it. Yikes, now what? I guess we just go wash feet. It's <laughs> a great way to end it. I don't well to do. <laughs> Thankfully, my husband and I are on this track together. But outside of that, it's been lonely while feeling that we woke up out of the matrix. No more fast track answers for people. More and more keep falling away but it's just love standing there to embrace. I spend half my time in utter gratitude and the other half not knowing what to do with myself. Mm. That's a great journey right there. Yeah. To realize I did things out of fear. Were they choices? Best choice I could make at the moment. But when you take, I love that, when you take fear off the table, which to me is the whole message of the cross, the whole you are loved by God before you make one one change in your life by you're still broken it's in love instead of fear will help you make better choices because you'll be you'll have agency inside the love of the father when religion says no you got to make better choices to get to god to get to the place where agency can happen that's where they've perverted the gospel it's now human effort not god's power and paul was so consistent with i don't want your faith to rest on human power but on God himself and trusting in him. And I love that. If we, our choices that we make, what are they motivated by? And most of the time we don't even know. We're just doing the best we think to do. But if they're motivated out of trauma, if they're motivated out of fear, then even our best choices are back to putting more destruction in the world. Mm. And when we can learn to live in love and not get lost in societal's manipulations and pressures, now I'm free to live inside of love. Now I become a different person in the world. Yeah. And to me, that, that's just a great description of what I see transformation being like in this kingdom. Mm. Fear, particularly seeing sin as a trauma. So sin is acting out of trauma, the trauma of being separated from God, the trauma of being powerless, having no agency against the temptations of my heart. And now I need him and having him, he creates a different environment in which now choices can have greater meaning and lead to that wholeheartedness we talk about. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I think that's the, that's the beauty and the power of what Jesus offers. Right. And so often it, oh my gosh, so often it gets cheapened or stolen or, or minimized. Right. It's like, okay, yes. Well, yes, Jesus did do this for you. Um, and the cross did do this for you, but, and then attacks on the, and we're right back into the fear that his, that his work eliminated, that it yes. took away that record. It took away any accusation that could be leveled against us. Hey, we get that for day one, right? We get forgiven. We know better. And then it's like immediately now, okay, I know better. I have to do it. Cause now, now I know what I'm doing, but we're still talking symptoms. Yes. I love that idea that sin is only a symptom of the brokenness within. And when God gets to love the brokenness within and the brokenness within gets healed, now we have the capacity, the ability to make better choices, to live in greater freedom. But instead, what we decided to do with all that was Adam and Eve did. They grab a covering. This is from Marilyn <laughs> by email. See, what if religious performance is a means of trying to cover our shame, like Adam and Eve tend to cover theirs with fig leaves? 
What if the cross, the resurrection, and the gift of the Holy Spirit is the eternal covering God has provided to his beloved humans for our redemption? Because mm. we have been tempted, abused, and traumatized by evil forces beyond our agency to resist. This perspective would explain why Jesus didn't condemn anyone for being a sinner, yet he does warn of the peril in rejecting his covering for our sin and shame. It would be akin to Adam and Eve saying no to the coats of skin God made for them and choosing instead to keep the fig leaves of their own making. Oof. That's yeah. good. <laughs> that is really good. Mm. That is really good. And that's a lot of good stuff there people are wrestling with. It really is. I think for me, the thing that resonated the most was this idea of day one, freedom, grace, love, you're good, like awesome. And then day two, almost instantaneously is, okay, now we're going to load you up with with the brand of Christianity or, you know, the expectations of the institution. And again, like, like Jesus said to the Pharisees, you're making them more of a slave than they were before. Hmm. Like day one, they're rejoicing because they stepped into my salvation. And then day two, they're living in a greater hell than what you, than what they were before. Yeah. And that's because 10% of us, I think, can really do the expectations well enough on the outside to feel valuable to God and able to judge those who still stuck in their pornography or still stuck doing whatever temptation they've got going in their lives. The, The offer that Jesus makes in terms of redemption to us, listen, I have a love for you that can win over this trauma. And I have agency for you. Inside that love is a different agency. I have yeah. freedom to make choices now that I didn't have 30 years ago. I grew up in the whole, yeah, now God saved you, rescued you, you've gotten your sins forgiven. And all that. Now you need to be a better Christian. And it wasn't, I wouldn't grow up in a horribly legalistic thing. But looking back, it definitely shifted on day two from the redemption that God gave me to a performance that Wayne has to do to be a good Christian and to avoid being a bad Christian. And then where I was successful at that, the arrogance of, well, I'm doing this better than those people over there who are just having fun, which didn't leave me to love the world in their trauma. It left me to judge them because I'm making better choices. They're making bad choices. And most of the choices were the things I couldn't do for God that I resented because my friends were having fun doing the things I wished I could do, but God said I couldn't. And so the human effort thing. So even on the other side of the, the religious performance thing, we still end up deeper trauma because now mm-hmm. the arrogance that takes over for those who do perform well, yeah. the arrogance takes over in a way that's judgmental and hurtful to others. To those who don't perform well, shame takes over and doubt about whether God loves me because doggone, I can't do enough to earn his approval or earn whatever blessing or earn his voice. And what God is simply asking us to do is, can you come inside of me? And can you let my love absorb the why questions, absorb the guilt and shame of trauma, absorb the covering you're trying to do for that? Can we just come bare naked before God without any of the other stuff and trust that we have a God who loves us enough that in my most vulnerable state, I'm going to be loved and I'm going to begin to find my wholeheartedness inside a redemptive work. And to me, reframing. Sin is trauma and reframing the fall as a traumatic, something that happened to us rather than something we chose, rather than something Adam and Eve chose. They were up against too much. Now, is that God's fault that God staged that? I don't think so. I, I, I don't, my mind doesn't go there. 
my mind says there's something going on there bigger than we know, but what he does let us in on helps us explain why the world is so broken around us, mm. how we get broken by that world, how religious performance further twists us up into our own performance, and how the only redemption is coming to rest in the love and power of God instead of Wayne's ability or Kyle's ability to do better for God than other people are doing or to somehow measure up for his expectations. Thank you for traveling with us today on The God Journey. You can join this conversation by visiting thegodjourney.com. 